0: Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, and you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Stephanie Mehta, the editor in chief of Fast Company. Fast Company is one of those magazines I pick up every time I'm at the airport because that's the only time I get to read a magazine. But also, lately and the last few years, I've really decided that I needed to know a lot more about business. And Fast Company is my go-to. We talk about her career, how she started from nothing at a newspaper in a small town. She's a mom, and uh, she's navigating a business world, but also a media world. Take a listen. So I am here. I feel very honored. I am with Stephanie Mita, the Editor-in-Chief of Fast Company. Welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, So I would love to hear some of your backstory. How you know, your path sort of
1: became to where it is today? Well, um, for me, it started in college. I didn't know what a journalist did. I didn't know what a journalism career looked like. And about three weeks into my freshman year, the woman who lived across the hall for me, also a freshman, came into the dorm with a copy of the Daily Northwestern. I went to Northwestern University and that was the, the daily newspaper for the school. And she had a front page story. And to me, it was a revelation, this idea that somebody who was a freshman, one of my peers, could walk into the newspaper one day and the next morning have her name on the front page for a piece of work she did, just felt incredibly empowering. Um, I loved the fast pace of it, this idea that, you know, you would be assigned a story and three hours later, you could walk out the door knowing that you'd accomplished something which is so different than the college experience. You know, as I was an English major, you could work on these long-term projects, these papers that would take the entire quarter or the entire semester. So the immediate gratification of what this colleague of mine was able to accomplish was really eye-opening for me. And so I was an English major at a university that had a really robust journalism program. So I sort of in a in a sort of chagrined kind of way, asked if I could follow her into the newspaper next time she went in. And she was really generous and gamely invited me along. By the time I had decided to join, all the great beats, you know, all the great assignments had already been handed out. But the one that was available was they said, well, would you like to cover business in the local town where the university was based, Evanston? And I was just so excited to be given the opportunity. I said, yes. And It became really serendipitous. I mean, I fell in love with journalism. I fell in love with business journalism, um, really decided that this is something I could make a career of and started to seek out internships and jobs in, in the profession. So for me, it was really it was just happenstance that I fell into it. I figured that I would get my English degree and either go to law school or go work in book publishing. I really had no idea that my career path would take me in this direction.
0: So, you start out as a journalist, and I'm sure lots of journalists you know have the idea that they're going to do this, and then some jump and they become editors, and then they grow and become editor in chiefs or if they're lucky, I say because there's very you know there's only so many magazines where you can be that.
1: What was that path like for you? I was perfectly happy to be a writer. I really enjoyed writing. I spent six years at The Wall Street Journal as mostly a writer, but doing some writing and some editing on the side. Um, moved over to Fortune magazine, and was happy to be writing long form features. It was a great lifestyle for me, particularly the magazine journalism, because um, I started a family, Um, I was able to time shift a little bit, you know, I could come home and be able to, you know, put my kids to bed and then work a little bit in the evenings. I really had my own schedule. And then about Seven years into my career as a magazine writer, the editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine, a guy named Andy Serwer, who's now editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance, asked me if I would be interested in moving over to editing. And I hadn't really thought about it. It wasn't something that was something I was thinking about at at that moment in time. But I sort of went through this mental exercise, and I've Go through it Every time a new career opportunity is presented to me, which is I thought, how would I feel if I say no to this job? I stay here at Fortune and I'm sitting in meetings with the person who takes the job that I've declined. How will that make me feel? Would I be supportive of that person? And would I be encouraging and just happy to continue down my existing career path? Or would I really would I would I feel a pang of regret? And I realized I'd feel that pang of regret. I'd feel like I, I, I was doing myself a disservice by not going for it. And so I made the move into editing and kind of haven't looked back. I think the thing that drew me to being an editor was the, the, the opportunity to mentor people. I mean, an editor really is first and foremost the good ones try to nurture and bring along a new generation of writers. So that was what attracted me to the role. Um, I've since realized that there are a whole bunch of other things that go into being an editor, including a lot of business considerations. And so that's been exciting because I'm learning, you know, uh, the journalism part I've got down. I know how to see a story and make it better. I know how to help a writer make a story better business development and coming up with new ways to keep. Fast Company, Vital, in an environment where, quite honestly, media platforms are really challenged, has been really exciting because I'm learning.
0: And so, you know, I found that in launching this podcast, I was like, I did the same thing for 13 years. And so I also feel like I learned something new, or I'm still learning something new and starting a new media platform. So what are some of the things that you've done to learn faster or learn better in the changing of media and the business concerns?
1: Well, um, I'm lucky because I work for a business magazine and I get to talk to people like you, Rebecca, <laughs> every day. And so whenever I have an opportunity to meet a business executive, particularly somebody that's trying to grow a business, i it's a busman's holiday for me. I mean, I really do try to hoover up as much information as I can and, you know, watch out because I may turn the tables on you and start asking you for advice. But I mean, it is really, it's, it's a it's a fortunate position to be in because oftentimes, if I'm sitting in a room with a CEO or a founder or um somebody that interacts with media a lot, um, I'll just use it as a chance to, you know, sneak in a few questions about what's my concern of the day. Um, you know, one thing that I'm finding, and I'm sure this is your experience as well, is that, Culture is such a big part of the job. You know, it's really important to maintain and to think about culture every single day. Whenever I've come across an interesting cultural issue, you know, if it happens to be a day that I'm in a meeting with um, an executive who's built a really great culture, I may say to her or to him, you know, what's your best advice? Or, you know, particularly in my instance, it's how do you take an existing culture and make it your own? I That is the one thing that keeps me up at night.
0: Not the one. Lots of stuff keeps me up, <laughs> my baby included, but definitely culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And I, I'm curious to know whether or not this is something relatively new because I've been a business journalist for 25 years and I've never heard people talk about culture as I, much as they talk about it now.
0: I don't think people cared. I think it was come get your work done. And, you know, if you don't like it, go. You know, I think when you look at how also people were treated, whether it was from what I know of, you know, certain industries, it didn't matter how people were treated. And now we're caring about humans and now they're like, hey, you care about us, care about, you know, the environment. Right. Um, I think the one thing I had to finally tell myself, though, was I'm not going to. Yes, I want to have a great culture, but I can't be this person's spiritual savior. Like my environment might never make them truly happy as a human if they're not. And so do the best that I can, but like, I'm not going to solve all their problems.
1: And I think I was trying to be that. It's got to be very empowering once you finally realize that, (laughs) because you're right. It's um, particularly for people who are fairly early career. Yeah. I think they're still finding themselves. Totally. And so... Uh, not every culture is for every person. You can't be all things to all people. And so once you recognize that it's not your culture is not broken, if someone doesn't fit into the culture necessarily, right, it may just be that that individual needs a different kind of environment. Totally.
0: In in the fashion world, you know, a female editor in chief is pretty standard. Um, But I feel like in the business world, your role being a woman is rare. Uh How have you sort of Sadly, that's rare. Uh, But how have you approached with, you know, knowing that you represent or have the opportunity to affect and shape so many more women in business? How have you
1: kind of taken on that mantle of responsibility or maybe you haven't? No, it's a great question. And I I would say I, I have. And there's a couple of ways that we try to fly the flag for all people in business, but particularly uh, try to be super inclusive. Um, first of all, I'm lucky because I inherited a platform that is was already very inclusive. My predecessor, Bob Safian, did a really good job of making sure that projects like our most creative people in business list were 50-50 male and female Um, This year, we slightly overindexed on women. Um, I think more than a third of the people on the list were people of color. We tried really hard to make sure we had international representation. So it's part of the legacy I've inherited. And that makes it much easier. I'm not starting from a, a really low base. I'm starting from a really good place and just trying to build on it. You know, one of the other things that we try to do is make sure that our staff reflects the kinds of people we write about and so have worked really hard. And we'll continue to work hard, you know, not perfect by any means, but to try to make sure that the staff feels inclusive of a lot of different perspectives, male, female, different ethnicities, different backgrounds in the way people grew up. You know, unfortunately, uh, I think in the media business, as it's become harder and harder to find a foothold, it's been also harder and harder for people who come from unconventional backgrounds to find their way in. Um, You'll find a lot of Ivy League degrees in newsrooms around the country, and that's a a shame because we need people who grew up and, you know, in many cases, journalism was a profession where people didn't even go to college back in the day. You know, we need more diverse points of view in our newsroom, and we're we're working on that. I'm really proud of our October cover. We put Arlen Hamilton, who is an African-American venture investor, on the cover. She's not a household name. She's not somebody that even a lot of Fast Company readers were probably familiar with but we really wanted to highlight what we see as the future of business. You know, that's the tagline of Fast Company. We're not the Wall Street Journal, we're not Fortune Magazine, both of which are great publications that I I consume on a daily basis, but you know, our readers look to us for an understanding of where business is going and we strongly believe that the people who built American commerce in the last 50 years, are not the same kinds of people who are going to build American commerce in the next 50 years. And we think Arlen was really emblematic of where business is going. And a lot of her efforts are are also focused in that direction. Putting her on the cover was our way of saying, we think this is where the world is going.
0: So one thing you talk about is, which I love, and someone explained this to me, um, diversity versus inclusion. And when it was explained to me, the difference... And and also, I'd love you to speak about it was, you know, diversity means uh, there is a point of normalcy from which you view others being different, whereas inclusion is everybody. So would you talk to me a little bit about what that
1: means to you and how you see it? Yeah, and I think that I've not heard that ex- explanation of it, but I think that's a really um, that's a great one. I always um, think back to a quote from Ava DuVernay, the director and, and producer She spoke at a conference that I helped put together a couple of years ago, and I'm paraphrasing her a little bit, but she said, you know, she doesn't like the word diversity. She likes the word inclusion because everybody knows what it feels like to be excluded. Everybody knows what it feels like to be included. So on this journey that we're on to try to make sure everybody in the room you know, our, um, 65 year old male colleagues, our 23 year old Asian American intern to make sure that everybody feels like they're part of the conversation. If you talk about inclusion and you talk about something that does feel like a common experience, you're going to get much more buy in. And so I think, you know, that's what Ava was trying to say when she talked about inclusion versus diversity. And I think that's a really positive way of looking at this effort to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table.
0: Totally. So I'd love you to share any, I know you uh, had mentioned you had a story about like when you were 24 and someone gave you some help that didn't they didn't need to give you. Will you share that with us?
1: Yeah. So my first job in journalism was at a local newspaper in Norfolk, Virginia called the Virginian Pilot and Ledger Star. It was actually a morning paper and an afternoon paper that merged. And i didn't really know anybody when I got down there. You know, it was a good job. Um, I wanted to practice being a journalist. And, you know, at that time, a lot of people coming out of journalism schools were getting assistant jobs. Um, they were sort of starting at the, the bottom of the totem pole, which is what I was doing, but it was actually a real writer's job. So I said, I'd rather go to a small market and be able to, to write lots of stories than go to a big market and, you know, have to find time to write as part of a side gig. And so I went down to Norfolk, Virginia, and I think I had been in the job for a couple of weeks when I got an email back then it was we had these old computers and it was a, a little message popped up and it was one of the more senior editors inviting me to dinner with a group of other senior women editors. And I knew all their names but I didn't really know everybody personally because I was new and hadn't had a chance to work my way around all of the departments. But it was the most amazing thing, Rebecca. I mean, you know, to be this 24 year old kid who didn't really know anybody and to have the senior most women in this news organization reach down and say, you know, we want to take you to dinner. And we had dinner at someone's home. I think it was out near Virginia Beach. So it was like driving in the dark for, you know, 30 miles trying to figure out where this was. And it was like it was an embrace. It was the A warm feeling. I remember, you know, they'd opened a bottle of wine, someone was making a home cooked meal. And it was and and, and then it was just gossip. You know, it wasn't there was no agenda. It was just making me feel welcome. And I've taken that with me everywhere I've gone. I mean, the fact that these women who had no agenda except to make sure that I felt included, to use the word of the day, but also to make sure that um, I felt supported, it meant the world to me. And it made, I think, a big difference in my career trajectory there, because I think my feeling was, you know, I just I, I just need to get everything I can out of this job and then move on to the next one. It really gave me a sense of, of being part of a community. And it, it turned what was could have been a very transactional career move into one that I feel Um, I look back on with with great gratitude.
0: So if someone is working at a company and they feel like their mentorship is not something that's going to be possible at that
1: company, where do you feel like people can look for mentorship? I feel like there's a lot of different opportunities to find mentors. I think, first of all, if you are in a bigger company, the mentor may not be in your division or in your department. So I would probably first start with Looking at like the concentric circle, if it's not somebody that's in your division or department, you know, do you if you work at a conglomerate or you work at a bigger place? Like, are there other people um, who work at other divisions who who could be mentors for you? When I was at the old time incorporated um, back then, it was I worked for Fortune, but the same company owned People magazine and Entertainment Weekly and In my case, through the um, Asian-American Affinity Group, I got to know a really great executive editor at People magazine named Jeannie Park. And even though we didn't work together side by side, and in fact, because we didn't work together, she was able to really give me great pointed advice. She knew the organization, so it was really helpful. um, But she didn't necessarily know or care about the personalities involved in, you know, a particular professional issue I was trying to tackle. So she could be both objective but also had context so I guess I'd first say if you are in a bigger organization, see if there's an adjacent division where you can find some help. I think that professional organizations are great. Again, if you're a member of a profession like journalism, there's again for us, it's the Asian American Journalists Association. Um, but I think inside a lot of other professions, there are um, organizations that you can join and many of them actually have Um, mentorship programs. So Women in Communications is an organization here in New York that is for, you know, journalists and publicists and PR people and heads of comms and marketing executives. And you know, it's it's a really vibrant rich group. And very oftentimes, you know, a lot of women who join that group join specifically because they're looking to be mentors and to help. So I'd say professional organizations. And then finally, you know, again, the number of times I've just had people reach out to me uh, because they've seen my name in a story or they saw me speak on a panel, I can't be necessarily a full time mentor to everybody who comes over the transom like that. But um, I do try to carve out, you know, a little bit of time every week to take a phone call from somebody I don't know or to answer some email questions. So I think if you find if you make a connection with somebody that you see on a panel or that you see in a um, at a conference, I think those are also great ways to find mentors.
0: So one of the things um, when I, I've been on the panel circuit recently, and one of the things I talk about is to the young young folk is you can't Uber your success. There's no Amazon Prime button to suddenly go from a journalist to the editor-in-chief of a magazine. And because everything is so clickable, I feel like more young people think that success is. But I'd love to hear about, you know, a time of extreme challenge or failure
1: and what got you through it or what you learned from it. So after I left the Virginian Pilot I got a job at the Wall Street Journal. So I did make the leap from this sort of small market to New York and it was an entry level position um and I was and looking back I was completely prepared for the job but didn't feel like I was prepared for the job. I was excited to get it but I got to New York and you know again just thinking back to that period of time in in one's life I just felt like I was competing with everybody. And it wasn't that it was a competitive environment. I just couldn't help but look around the newsroom at everybody that was sort of in my age group or my peer group, and just all I could do was benchmark myself against other people. And I think I I felt like I was failing. It was really hard. And I remember talking with another young writer that I had gone to college with who had moved to New York around the same time, and he said, you know, it's this is New York. It's sink or swim. Like he was not supportive at all. And, you know, to go from, again, that environment in Virginia where I just felt incredibly supported and where I felt like there were there was this generation of senior women who were really invested in my success to go from that to New York, where, you know, it really is, especially in a newsroom like The Wall Street Journal, which is a big place. I I was very lucky. I did have a very um, supportive editor who really, helped me along and, and was terrific. But I couldn't help but feel like I was failing because, you know, this writer had a front page story or that writer um, got a promotion or that young person got to the hotbeat of writing about the Internet. And so I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, part of it is you're still just finding yourself when you're that age. And I I was pretty lost. I Thought, you know, I wasn't progressing fast enough. I wasn't progressing at the same rate as my peers. At one point, I think this was during the Asian financial crisis. I thought, well, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just move to, you know, Singapore and freelance stories about, you know, the Asian financial crisis. I really, I was a little bit lost. I think for me, what changed it was, it was helpful to start getting a little bit more professional success. I, I think it just took time for me to find my rhythm and to find my groove. But also it was, when i stopped trying to compare myself to everybody else um which is an important lesson not only in the professional world but sort of in life and i think that was a real turning point for me when i realized nobody was holding me to that standard except myself yeah
0: and in taking this journey do you feel like i think often uh the stories of sacrifice aren't told and i think it you know behind the instagram filters it doesn't look like anyone's sacrificing um what are some sacrifices you've made good or bad. I mean, I don't view that as a bad thing. I think we all make certain choices of which levers to pull during certain parts of our lives. Like I'm sacrificing, um, I don't know, not seeing my friends. And sometimes I see my husband.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely feel like um, friendships have suffered a little bit. It's really hard to make time for everything in one's life. And so if you're making a choice between family and friends, you know, especially for me right now, family comes first you know I've got a my my older daughter just turned fifteen, my younger daughter just turned thirteen, and I feel like I can't give them enough of my time um, I wish I could give them more so that's that's a little bit of a sacrifice. I think when my kids were growing up because we were a two parent working household, I feel like I didn't get enough of a sense of community um, I, I live in Scarsdale New York, which is a really wonderful, wonderful community for families and People are really um, invested in the community, they're invested in the kids' schools, and I feel like I've missed a little bit of that, um, because it is a really wonderful place, and I always grew up with, you know, my parents were very involved in the schools, they were very uh, aware of what was going on in the town, you always looked out for your neighbors, and I feel like I've lost a little bit of that by not being, by, by being just so busy with
0: work. Totally. I think that um, my kids' teachers think that maybe my husband and I are crazy because like sometimes, you know, I got a comment the other day, Um, can you, can you dress your daughter in a shirt that doesn't show her stomach and jeans that doesn't show her, her butt? Because she went to school and both her tummy and when she sat down, her tush were showing. And I was like, you know, they probably think I don't care. I don't know. But like if I can just get clothes on her, I feel like I'm winning sometimes.
1: Yeah, it, it gets easier. <laughs> I will say now that my kids can dress themselves, it gets a little bit easier. Um, although it's funny because uh, actually one is really easy because she's going through an all black phase. So it makes laundry really easy totally. and it makes getting up and figuring out what to wear in the morning really easy. Yeah. So, you know, and and. and midriff is covered. that's good,
0: <laughs> so being that you see um so many companies, if a woman who's listening to this is thinking about starting a company or has one and is struggling, what would you say from all the access you have and knowledge you have that are just good advice to just either keep going or you know here's what you should know when you get started? That's a really big question, yes,
1: I would say you know one of the things that I've been heartened by but i also think needs to needs some thought is there's been so much effort and it's all good stuff to try to encourage women to start businesses and um more sources of financing more office hours being created for women who need advice and it's all great i think it's important to be supportive but i also think we need to exercise a little bit of tough love i think there are a lot of businesses out there that will not succeed And I mean, that's the case, male or female founded, right? I mean, small business is hard and the failure rate is is real. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with failing because, you know, if you do it in the right way, you'll learn from it and it'll inform your next business. But I think a lot of along with the support, I think women also need to be uh, willing to give tough love and tough advice to a new generation of founders whose ideas may not make it in the marketplace i mean you probably see a lot of business plans every day that you just look at and say you know m- not the right market not the right time seven people tried this business idea 2 years ago and failed you know and i think that we need to be encouraging but i think we also need to make sure that women are really stress testing their business ideas because it is hard to fail and 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 discouraging and, you know, I I think there's a certain kind of entrepreneurial spirit like yours where, you know, you dust yourself off and you try the next thing. But I think for some women um, who are not sort of like that that really, really hardcore entrepreneurial spirit, that can be really discouraging. So I think my advice would be really stress test your business plan before you start going out into the marketplace with it and, and investing your own money or your friends and family's money. You know, find someone who's going to give it to you straight.
0: Yep. And I think we have to learn to not be, like you said, like you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You know, I think we've been over conditioned to like not hurting people's feelings, but sometimes honesty is better. I told this woman, I was like, your idea doesn't stand out. It's no different than something else. It's exactly the same. So until you figure out that tweak, you know, you might not succeed. And that was hard to do. I felt guilty doing it, but she needed to hear it.
1: Yeah. No. And I, and, and I think that you, some people get defensive, but the people who are really going to make it are the people who can take that constructive criticism, make the revisions necessary or go back to the drawing board. Right.
0: So uh, one question I ask every person who is my guest is what would
1: people be surprised to know about you? Oh, wow. Um, I sing in the car at full tilt. Love it. All the time. I can't help it. I think I drive my spouse crazy because if... Something comes on the radio. It doesn't even have to be a song I like. I just, it, it's it's like, um, do, did you see that movie In and Out with Kevin Klein, where he's a closeted, um, high school drama teacher or yeah. English teacher who teaches drama on the side, and the song YMCA comes on, and he's trying to prevent himself from dancing, but he can't help it. Yeah, I'm like that with any music in the in Love the car. It. I Love just, I, I can't help myself.
0: I sing and my kids and my husband tell me I sound like Yoko Ono. So that's not, that's not (laughs) a a people It's good, but not, not in my case. Well, and then my last question for you is any advice you'd love to leave
1: our listeners with? Um, I would say never stop learning. You know, that has been, if anything, my, I don't want to call it the key to my success because that sounds um, high-minded or a little bit arrogant, but I, I attribute a lot of my professional growth to the fact that I've kept my curiosity going. I've tried not to think that I know all the answers. And again, some of that is important professionally, you know, in my job you always need to keep asking questions and and you know, the minute you think that you've got it figured out, something new comes along that's equally important or more important. Um but it's also it's very humbling and it keeps you grounded when you realize that there's so much out there in the world that is left to learn. And so I think That's, that's the one thing that I encourage people to, to bear in mind is to just, you know, always keep your sense of curiosity alive.
0: I love that because back when I first started, I, I felt like I could live in a silo. I could just be a designer. And I'll never forget my brother said, you have to keep evolving and keep learning. And now I'm like. I voraciously read Fast Company or other business magazines. And that's the exciting part to me. The design part I got, you know, I can been doing that for a long time. But like the business side is the fascinating side for me. And I'm like, why didn't I spend my first five years doing that? Um, It's never too late. Never too late. So thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you, Rebecca.
1: This was so much fun.
0: That was Stephanie Mehta, the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. So definitely go pick up the latest
1: magazine and
0: keep the print alive people i thought i'd read a couple of reviews because uh, we've had a bunch of new ones lately this one is called ga ga so good from sophia papa don't know what to say except this podcast is so good i agree I love hearing such honest and refreshing stories from these amazing women. Rebecca is such a wonderful and down-to-earth interviewer who is so natural in each conversation. Can't wait when a new episode comes out each week. I'm so glad you love it, Sophia. You just gave me fuel for the next few weeks. The next one is from Dr. F. Cop Calling future entrepreneurs. New to this podcast, but it's been exactly what I am looking for. I am a mother of three, feeling I have come to a crossroads with my professional life and hungry for content that provides thought-provoking inspiration. Rebecca's podcast is it, and it's such a good resource with the range of guests she interviews. Thank you. Class is in session. Oh, I love hearing that. Thank you so much. I really do love reading your reviews. They really make me happy, and they do give me soul fuel. So thanks for tuning in, and make sure you keep the reviews coming and tell all your friends.